This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. On today's program, we talk to Nick Cox about his forthcoming article in Critique. It's called In the Shadow of the Russian Revolution, Putin, Xi, and the Long War in Ukraine. Nick looks at the shock to the world system that Putin's war has provoked, the state of the war with Ukrainian resistance beating back Russia at enormous cost to human life and infrastructure, and the nature of the relationship between Russia and China in the world order in process of becoming. Nick argues that this war has not only wreaked havoc with energy prices and destabilized the financial system worldwide, but it's also created strange bedfellows who view the world through the prism of the U.S. and NATO, denying agency not just to Ukrainians, but also to Russians and Chinese. We don't know how it will turn out, but Putin's war has already changed the trajectory of the 21st century. We'll get Mick Cox's analysis when our program returns in just a moment. But first, listeners, take note and write this down. I'm excited to announce that I'm creating an online companion to this podcast. On my new site, you'll find regularly updated articles and interviews of mine. It's going to be packed with information you'll love, and it'll be free. Please email me at beneaththesurfacekpfk at gmail.com. That's all one word, beneaththesurfacekpfk at gmail.com, and I'll put you on our mailing list. And now, let's go to the program. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. Very pleased to have Nick Cox joining us again, now in an extended conversation about Russia's war on Ukraine and the meaning of war in the 21st century. The war isn't going well for Russia, but it features or at least shows some horrible features, and that is unthinkable savagery on the ground, forced Russian conscripts as cannon fodder, the unified resistance of Ukrainians fighting to prevent being swallowed by Putin's ambitions and thievery, and a shock to the world system with gigantic global consequences. As Mick writes, among other consequences, is a blow to any liberal optimism there may once have been about the international system becoming less anarchic. Boy, oh boy, is that right? In particular, he notes, and we'll discuss, the relationship between China and Russia. Mick Cox also argues that Putin's war has not only destabilized the financial system worldwide, divided left and right, north and global south, he sees Putin's war as one against the shadow of the Russian Revolution as much as it is against Ukraine. And it's changing China as well, as China reasserts a more, what shall we say, Stalino-Maoist politics, Mm -hmm. reaffirming the power of authoritarian bureaucratic command in both economy and, and politics. And in this way, Russia's war is changing the trajectory of the world order. We're going to get Mick's view, and we're also going to ask him, since he's in London, about the churning in British politics where the new prime minister, Liz Truss, has resigned and I guess has broken all records. Global instability indeed. Well, let me just, before I say hi, Mick, let me tell the listeners who you are. Mick is an emeritus professor of international relations at the LSE or the London School of Economics, where he helped establish the Cold War Studies Center. 
He previously taught at Queen's University, Belfast, and also the Department of International Politics in Aberystwyth in Wales. He served as a fellow at the Nobel Institute in Oslo, lectured in Peking University, and he's currently about to start a visiting professorship at the Catholic University in Milan. He's authored many books on international politics, the Cold War, U.S. foreign policy, and the behavior of superpowers. Most recently, a new edition of E.H. Carr's The 20 Years Crisis, uh, Keynes's The Economic Consequences of the Peace, and Carr's long out of print classic nationalism and after all very important for the moment we're living in mm. and the post Cold War world. And he has one book coming out this year, maybe two. But this one that I'm going to mention is Agonies of Empire, U.S. Power from Clinton to Biden. Mick's also on the editorial board of critique. And what we're going to talk about is an article he's written that will appear in a forthcoming issue. So with all of that, Mick, welcome to the program. Thanks very much for that generous introduction. I, I, when I was listening to you, Susie, I wondered who you were describing. And then I realized you were describing me. But anyway, thanks again. Yes, thanks you're welcome. Well, I just have to start about yeah. the situation in the country you're living in at mm. the moment. So we've got this Liz Truss, right? Mm. And uh, she's been the butt of many jokes, including lettuce jokes and cabbage jokes and all of that. But I saw a, a great tweet yesterday, and that says, Truss resigned after 44 days, maybe 45, but managed to preside over the deaths of the Queen, the Pound, and the Conservative Party, the sort of record thousands of would-be revolutionaries spent their entire lives hoping to achieve and got nowhere near, and she pulled it off in a mere six weeks. So, of course, there's that, and I'd love you to talk about it, and, and then the prospect of Bojo Redux. Well, thanks, Susie. We're starting with the pain in my backyard, as I call it. Look, I mean, and this is why I always think, they always say, don't you, in the States, all my good friends in the States say, the British have a sense of humour. Well, I think now you need one. Yeah. Because in some senses, there is something deeply humorous and uh, almost uh, Monty Python-esque sure. much of this. You know, there is a kind of a element about it you couldn't make up if you were a scriptwriter for a comedy programme. But digging beneath the surface, going behind the headlines, which I think you want me to do, I think there's something far more serious going on here, which I do think we need to address. The first thing to remember is that although the United Kingdom no longer runs the world, as it did after the First World War, it's still the fifth, sixth largest economy in the world. It still has a lot of what I might call linguistic power. It still has the city of London, and it's still a major influence in terms of foreign direct investment. It also has a very serious and long ongoing relationship with the United States. So although it's nowhere near the power of the United States, um, nonetheless, it's still a very significant player. And therefore, what happens to it is significant. And, and behind all the jokes, one of the ones you said, talked about there, which was pretty good, I thought. Yeah. You know, there is something more serious, because in a sense, if an economy is big and a, a country really as influential as the UK, with all of those assets I talked about, and a few more besides, and a few downsides as well, if in a sense that enters into a period of deep crisis, then that, that has knock-on effects uh, for the rest of the world. And I think one's got to kind of take that into consideration. And this is why I think, actually, looking at the debate in the United States, as I've been trying to, you know, I think some in the United States, while making the usual jokes, which they love making against the Brits, which I fully understand and appreciate and laugh with as well. 
nonetheless, I think there are a number in the States and indeed across the, the channel in France who've been saying, well, hold on, there's something really worrying going on here. That if Britain, you know, a point of stability in the world, one of the drivers of globalization and all the rest of it, over the last 30, 40 years, a cl- very close ally, of course, the United States, and a key player, by the way, too, in the Ukraine war. We can talk about that later. If something really bad is going down in Britain, then that has consequences not only for Britain and not only for people who like writing jokes about the Brits, but for the rest of the world. And that's the first most general point I'd make. You know, take it, it's funny, but it's deeply, deeply serious. The second point I'd make, Susie, and I'll make it briefly, I think this also tells us a lot about long-term consequences of events that nobody predicted, but whose consequences are huge. What I think Taleb, Nicholas Taleb, once called black swan events, do you remember? Mm. That is to say, these are the events you don't predict, but have the consequences which are unanticipated but big. And I think much of this derives from an unanticipated event that occurred in 2016 called Brexit, the vote. And, you know, basically this was not a vote the corporates wanted, this is not a vote which the city wanted, this is not a vote the business community wanted, it's not a vote basically large members, you know, all the basic middle-class elites wanted, really, to be perfectly honest. Now, we don't need to go back over why it happened, but it happened. And I think this is the working through of an event which nobody... It's a little bit like your own election into when Donald Trump was elected. Nobody anticipated it, but the consequences turned out to be huge. And I think very similar to Brexit, which was connected to the Trump election in 2016. I think the third point I make finally is this. What's brought this about, if we can put it, is that large wave we call populism. Now, that populist surge which obviously influenced mainland Europe, it's clearly affected the United States, the anti-globalization, the anti-elite, the right wing. It's now coming out in Italy. You can see this in some parts of Germany, although less so there. But you can certainly still see it in America, and with the consequences we can talk about. But that's also what's been worked out here, really. So in a way, yes, it is very funny. And and in some ways, I, I have never stopped laughing quite so much about it. But when you see a party which has been so successful historically at ruling this country, really, collapsing in of itself. That's telling you something about a deeper crisis, not only in this country, but maybe a problem throughout the whole world. And that was actually made finally, sorry to go on a bit long, too long, Susie. The, world, the Wall Street Journal, which is a paper I don't often read and sometimes do, but when I do, occasionally some good stuff there. And I think one guy made a very good point. He said, Look, there's a crisis in Britain, the crisis caused by the pandemic, the knock-on effects of the Ukraine-Russia war, cost of living crises. This is not just a British problem. This is a global problem. And I think that's the way I'd also like to think about it. I really like the way that you frame that, Mick. And of course, agree with you. We have to go on to the main subject. But I just want to say that the other side of that is you know, this realignment in politics that has occurred literally since the financial crisis, Mm. but and also begun much before it, where you have the working class left adrift from the traditional liberal or social democratic parties and now moving toward the far right and the populist rhetoric that you saw certainly with Trump and others. And this is changing some of the politics so that you might get someone like even Tarek Alley saying in his sidecar that we need a real conservative government 
you know, with a C to stabilize the situation. And of course, he thinks that Starmer was the one that would do that. Mm. He's joking some, but you also m- mentioned, Mick, the crisis in Europe. And we see in France quite a lot of upheaval and, and maybe even a general strike coming in Italy. So this is something we can't really dwell right. too much longer on, but I think just to note it is very yeah. good. And I'm there's, glad there's you. A, there's also a connection with what we're going to talk about, Susie, which is the Ukraine-Russia yeah. war. You know, the knock-on effects in terms of energy prices, the undermining of confidence in Europe, and we're going to have a very cold winter if the gas doesn't come through. Less right. than maybe in Britain, but, you know, certainly countries like Germany and others are going to hit it, be hit very much more. So there is a, a connection. There is a connection, too, with what we're going to talk about in a moment. Well, let's just go there, I think, Mick Cox, and talk about this insane, it seems, but failing and brutal and murderous war on Ukraine that Russia has ignited Mm. by first denying the existence of Ukraine, destabilizing global finance, as you've just said, and energy prices in particular, Mm. and then also unwittingly causing everything that he railed against. I'm talking about Putin railing against NATO, which he's now unified and strengthened by this war. And he also, by not allowing anyone to call it a war, but a special military operation, but then doing so badly had to have a draft, has ignited an anti-war movement at home and caused a huge exodus Mm. of young men to avoid being drafted. So there's all of that. But as you say, and maybe I'd like you to perhaps start with the situation, but quickly move into Mm. one of the important things that you say in this article to be published, and that is that Putin's also created or united strange bedfellows. Maybe Mm. this is not unlike what we talked about a moment ago in terms of Mm. the realignment of politics in the world. But here you've got some forces on the left and the right. You've got Mearsheimer and Chomsky and Jeffrey Sachs and others, Mm. along with uh, divisions between the uh, North and Global South. Then you've got here in the U.S. Code Pink, Roots Action and World Beyond War. And the far right of Orban, Trump's MAGA forces in Le Pen, all somewhat supporting Putin, unthinkably, not really supporting that, but not either asking to go straight to negotiations and ceasefire and mm. still making Ukraine invisible. So let's just start with all of that, the situation in the war and what's it's yeah, thanks, ignited. Su- thanks, Susie. I mean, as you say, uh, to add to the list of strange bedfellows, by the way, you might add the former Italian prime minister. Signor Berlusconi, um, who has joined this far-right government in Italy. But he himself has just leaked, or has been leaked, relations he's already re-establishing with Putin, saying that this war has largely been caused by Zelensky and that uh, you know Putin is a really decent guy. So, you know, it has caused all sorts of really peculiar realignments within it, no doubt about it. The other thing I'd want to mention very quickly at the very beginning, I mean, you mentioned all the things that need to be mentioned, there are many more besides, but I think we also need to keep in mind, and I do that in my article as well, the consequences of the appalling war in Ukraine itself. Hmm. You know, I mean, it's perfectly reasonable to talk about what's been happening in Russia because of the military setbacks, its consequences on the world economy, the relationship with China, all of which we will talk about in a moment. But first and foremost, let's keep in mind what's happened on the ground in Ukraine. Thousands of civilians dead, wounded, six to seven million people displaced internally, six, seven million refugees, cities destroyed, hospitals destroyed, drones dropping bombs all over Kiev and other major cities across Ukraine, a 40% drop in its GDP. 
you know, so the real loser in this world, without any doubt, whatever the wider consequences and the deeper causes, we always keep that in mind. Who, who's been the victim in this war and who's not? And it's been Ukraine. Whatever you may think of Ukrainian nationalism, talk about Ukrainian politics before the war. And what do you think of Zelensky? Put that to one side. It's, right. the, it's the Ukrainian ordinary people, working people, middle class people who have been affected. And we see, I see the consequence that in this country, in, in the UK, I've got friends in Poland, two to three million Ukrainians in Poland. And by the way, the Polish government, I don't like at all, but Poland overall has done a pretty good job in providing some degree of sanctuary for Ukrainians. I wish they'd done the same for the Afghanis and others from the Middle East, but that's a larger question. Oh God, where, where do we start on this one, Susie? Putin miscalculated, no question. At the very beginning, if he believed his own propaganda, that's always a very difficult thing to do. And he did. I think he wasn't provided with any intelligence. I think the decision making in the Kremlin must have been rubbish. Nobody wanted to tell him the problems. He was invading a very large country, by the way, the second largest country in Europe with 45 million people. And when armies invade other people's countries, the one thing always follows is that the people in that country will normally resist, particularly if the country in question here, the Russian army has not acted as liberators, but as oppressors. And that's an obvious fact of history when, when armies invade other countries. Clausewitz, the great Prussian military strategist, you know, in the 19th century who wrote on war, said many things brilliantly about war. But one thing he said is that war is very simple until it becomes very difficult. Hmm. Log of war. And in a way, Putin started out on this adventure of his, this appalling adventure of his, and six, seven months later, you know, he's run some massive resistance and, and resistance within Ukraine. And as you point out, I mean, you have to, there's no point dodging the question. You know, the amount of military and economic and financial and diplomatic support provided to the Ukrainians and the Ukrainian government by the West, and particularly by the United States, you know, they've been the greatest contributor in terms of economic military support to Ukraine. You know, all that is true. The question is, where are we now? And I think now we are in a very, very dangerous situation. Mm. I really think that. I mean, I'm not in Ukraine. I have friends who go back and forth there and talk to me about the situation as they see it. Friends from the Financial Times just gone out there and come back and gave me some very horrifying stories and some very interesting perspectives on the war. But Putin, they think, still has a strategy. You know. Oh, I'd love to hear what you think well, it is. But can I just it, before before yeah, you please, say that, I want to just sure. add one thing, please do. you know, because we've all endlessly we, everyone was wrong except U.S. intelligence. It looks and like about, about whether or not he would invade British as well. They chimed in on that. And one. British. Right. The intelligence services. And they did the bright thing of making it public. Mm. So that kind of undermined Putin if he wanted to just, you know, bluster instead of doing it. But here's something interesting that I saw. In a tweet from Navalny, who's in prison in Russia, he said 10 years ago, we made a video about Shoigu. We exposed him as a colossal thief with a gigantic vacation home. He's the head of the military. And then he said it was clear he would loot anything he got his hands on. And he said that he told everyone that Zolotov, the head of the National Guard, was looting everything he could right down to potatoes. And then Putin, Medvedev and the rest. So you have this giant elite of thieves who he says are fighting this war to cover up their 22 years of looting because the whole country's in shambles and they've had to Mm -hmm. falsify election results and all the rest of it. 
I don't know, you know, if that's all of it, but it certainly, I think, is very important. Oh, yeah, no, 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 does something about the conduct of the war. Sure, no question about it. I mean, what Putin has done at home, he's doing abroad now. And it's not the first time he's used brutal force right. to, to suppress forces he doesn't like. He used it in Chechnya against Grozny. You know, he used it in Syria. In to the support Assad. Campaign. Yeah. He used it again in two. Th- so, you know, as they would say in the films, he's got form, you know. Yeah, he's got a right. track record. Right. So maybe right. one shouldn't have been su- surprised. But as you point out, many of us, including myself, I'll be honest, you know, never thought he would dare do something so adventurous and, and so problematic on day one. I thought, if I'm sitting here in southwest London, I can see it. Why the hell can't he see it in Moscow? Because it looked like you're kind of leaping into a war of choice. And wars of choice always end badly. Look what happened to the Americans in Iraq. You know, look what happened to the Russians in Afghanistan. Back in and the Americans in Afghanistan, too. Well, yeah, indeed, uh, the NATO in Afghanistan. But, um, you know, so why, why? But where is he now? And that's really the question I think we should address. I think he still has a strategy, and it's, it's, a, it's a pretty problematic okay. one. First of all, he called up 300,000 reservists, which is causing just political destabilization to some degree. It mustn't overestimate in Russia. Secondly, he's tightened up politically at home, even more so than he had before, but that's becoming more and more difficult, as we've seen. He's beginning to lose control at home, but how far he's lost control is a larger question. Thirdly, he's threatened to use nuclear weapons if there's further successes by a Ukrainian, or the Americans, as he sees the Ukrainians as being basically Ukrainians, Americans with Ukrainian accents, largely. He then declared all four republics to be part of Russia, but, but he's also got a wider strategy is to escalate the war by any means possible now and to increase the economic war basically on the Europeans in order to force those who are less keen on this war, particularly in Europe and not only, and maybe public opinion back in America, say, well, we come to a deal, we can cut a deal. In the end, we're going to have to come to some sort of deal. And that, I think, is what he's, he's aiming for. So he escalates in order to negotiate. He increases the economic pain on the West in order to make sure, hope he can break sure the West will uh, put pressure on the Ukrainians to negotiate. I'm not sure it's going to work, though, because I'm not sure the Ukrainians are going to buckle. You know, after what they've been through after six, seven, eight, nine months, um, I'm not arguing for war per se, but one could fully understand why they have absolutely no intention or desire to engage. But that's what I think he's trying to do. But I think it makes it more dangerous because now... And as I think Macron has pointed out, quite rightly, by the way, and even Elon Musk pointed it out in yeah. a peculiar, weird way. I mean, Putin's got his back against the wall. And you know, when people push it back against the wall, they can become even more dangerous. Putin once said to the director of the CIA, when the director of the CIA met him before the war, Burns, he said, this is not a war I can afford to lose. Draw your own conclusions from that statement. I mean, but all of that is absolutely true. And it kind of then once again, you know, we cannot imagine why he embarked on this war. Mm. And, you know, we started out by saying this is sort of what happens when you have authoritarian regimes that surround themselves with people who are just yes men. They don't have, you know, a good grasp of what's going on because everyone's afraid to say the truth. We saw that under Stalin. We've seen it in many different places. And here again, it seems to be happening. But 
Putin also used, and I like to just bring this up because you make the argument that this war is against the shadow of the Russian Revolution mm. as much as it is against Ukraine. If you can explain that, it kind of takes us into the new global order in process of becoming because of what the relationship with China and the rest of the world is. Yeah, thanks, Susan. That's good points. Look, if you're trying to explain why Putin did what he did on February 24th, there is no single silver bullet explanation. I really don't think there is. I mean, I've heard certain people, largely on the left, but not only on the left, people like Jack Matlock, the former ambassador, John Mearsheimer, and many others, you know, that strange coalition, if you want to call them that, basically saying the key to all this is NATO enlargement, NATO expansion. Now, clearly that is part of the background. I I would in no sense want to deny that. But to use that simply as the explanation of a decision taken by a police state, (laughs) you know, on February 24th, which most people thought he wasn't going to take anyway, strikes me as A, oversimplifies and Mm. takes away, if I might put it, it takes away agency from Russia. It takes away agency from Putin. You know, the idea that somehow or another Russia only responds because of what the West does or doesn't do, strikes me as the kind of (laughs) worst kind of patronising. It's almost patronising Putin, if I might put it like that, if you get my point. Absolutely. There are obviously reasons which are internal to Russia, internal to Putin's understanding of the world, Putin's understanding of history, Putin's belief in Russia as a great power. All these things, from an academic point of view, an intellectual point of view, make a much more interesting intellectual debate than simply saying it's all to do you know, with NATO or the fact we didn't give Russia a lot of economic aid in the 1990s. I think that's just... I mean, this America-centric view of the world, oh, too, which not only... I love that you made this point, Mick, and I'm going to stop interrupting yeah. you, but you no, say no not only is Ukraine invisible, but Russia, too. No, exactly. You know, countries, statesmen, statespeople, you know, are authors of their own destiny as much as they are reacting to the stimulus or the lack of stimulus or economic aid of others. I mean, take China today. So much of the debate about China today, I find, is uh, determined by how China's looking at the United States. Well, how about how Xi Jinping is looking himself at Chinese history? Mm. How himself he looks at Chinese power? And you've seen much of that being demonstrated in this recent Congress. Rather than always saying that somehow or another it's the West or the United States, which is the key factor in what then other nations and states do. They have their own agency, and I call them, they also are authors of their own destiny, tragic or otherwise, it seems to me, and I think we've got to take that into consideration. Now, on the Russian Revolution point, which I made in my article, it, it simply came out of kind of reading Putin. You know, it's quite a good idea to go back and read Putin what he says, No, not what somebody said back in 1997 about NATO enlargement or what George W. Bush may have said in Bucharest in 2008-9 about we should keep an open door. All of that is not unimportant. Don't get me wrong. But read what Putin says. Read what Putin reads. Look at what he says about the past. How does he construct Russia? How does he think about Russia's place in the world? Russia is a great power. What's his vision for Russia? If you can put it in those particular terms. But certainly one of the things that construct, determines his way of looking at the world is a certain vision of Russia's past. You know, mm. the, the, the great people in his construction of the past are czars. Peter the Great, top of the pops, <laughs> Alexander III. He's also you know, been very, very positive about all the white generals who fought against 
Bolsheviks in, in yeah. the war. And some, uh-huh. of the philosoph- some of the philosophers who he celebrated, and quotes, by the way, are not what we would call liberal, progressive, or anything that the, sympath- the left themselves would have any great sympathy for what. I won't begin to go into some of their appalling views. But on the Russian Revolution, this is, I think this is very important. Unlike the Chinese, the Chinese, Xi has never rejects Marxism-Leninism, whatever you think of it, and he never rejects the October Revolution. And he doesn't even reject Marx. So in fact, you know, the Chinese put money together to build a new statue of Marx in, the, hmm. in his hometown to commemorate 200 years of his life. Now, Putin would never do that. It's quite interesting. He's rejected the Russian Revolution. He's rejected Marxism. He's rejected communism. And he actually has said, and he, he said that in his famous essay, of July 2021 on Ukraine and Russia, where he denied Ukraine even existed. He said, but the problem really began not with the independence vote in 1991, although that's implicit, or with the breakup of the Soviet Union, which he believes is a geopolitical catastrophe, really. I could think of other catastrophes in the 20th century, far worse than that one. I'm sure you could too, Susie. Mm. But actually, he says it's all about Lenin. (laughs) It goes back to these wretched Bolsheviks. Which is so interesting because, you know, this some degree of autonomy to the Ukrainians in the 1920s. And that was that was in the sense the poison drop of poison put in there. And then later he says, well, I'll finish this. I'm going a little bit too long. But he then says, well, look, it was okay until the Soviet Union broke. And then the whole thing and the kind of the poison left by the Bolsheviks of giving some level of autonomy, which was quite right, of course, for the Bolsheviks to do so. In fact, it's one of the things, that, many of the things that Lenin did completely right, I think, was to give that autonomy, to give the Ukrainian space to become a nation. That, he says, was the problem. And that's why I said it's not only a, a revolt against the West, but it's also trying to bury the Russian Revolution forever, or one of the legacies of the Russian Revolution forever. Let right. me just amplify that for one second, oh. and then we'll move on, because I think it's really interesting that, There has been in the West every five or 10 years, a whole crop of new books, biographies Mm. of Trotsky and of Lenin, Mm. always trying to kick the revolution, you know, down, even when it was a dead revolution in Russia. And why? Because it was such a world threat. You know, when when Lenin, you know, not only proclaimed that every country should have the right of self-determination and determine their own course, But also he said something like every cook can govern. In other Mm -hmm. words, that there should be this bottom up democracy. So that's always been a threat. But what's also contradictory and interesting is that Putin, on the one hand, kicks the Russian Revolution and wants to say that this was the cause of everything bad. But he also, you know, upholds the Soviet Union and says it was the worst world tragedy when it collapsed, which maybe for you and me, Mick, that sort of validates our view that the Soviet Union was far from socialist Mm. or communist. But on the other hand, there is this notion of a great Russian imperial position in the world. But, you know, I think we need to move a little bit because you just said a lot of very interesting things about China as well. Mm. And here we have this relationship that, you know, most of the pundits or analysts right now looking at the war in Ukraine have not really emphasized in the way that you have. I'd love you to go into this because we saw on this one trip that even Modi, the other sort of rising power that's authoritarian right-wing power, chided Putin for this war and said, this isn't the way we have wars now in this century. But but China, you know, maybe you could just begin by yeah. describing that relationship and how you see it. 
Yeah, sure, Susie. Again, I'm writing a book on this. By the way, I've called the book Comrades. <laughs> With or without a question mark, I don't know at the moment. I'm halfway through it. And I've been writing quite a lot about this as well. This is, at one level, a relationship which should never have happened. Okay. You know, she claims to be a Marxist-Leninist. He celebrates the October Revolution. All the symbols of the Chinese Communist Party are Marxist-Leninist. Even now, under Xi particularly, all, all the language, the ideology is very much cast in a certain Marxist way, whatever you may think about it. I mean, it, that, it is there. And Russia is a very different country to China, different economies, different levels of development, different cultures. And then, by the way, very difficult histories. You know, they fell out very bad. They went to war nearly in 1969. And if you go back to the late 19th century, Russian Empire grabbed, right. grabbed about 1.5 million square miles of what was then China which Mao Zedong reminded them of in the 60s, by the way. So at one level, this relationship should never happen, or at least should not happen in the way that it has. That's my point. And so I was always interested in kind of exploring the paradox of something that might not have ever happened. In some ways, a lot of people still believe is merely a convenient relationship with no basic fundamental sources, not an axis. It shouldn't be taken too seriously. Joe Nye, who political science I admire quite a lot on the liberal side. He said, you know, he said in 2016, I'm quite a bit unfair now, but he said it's never going to go anywhere. And I was very interested, and I wrote about this back in six years ago, saying, look, I think it is going somewhere. And then I tried to explore some of the reasons why it was going somewhere. Now, I wasn't the only person. I'm, I'm not going to celebrate, you know, putting myself up on some pedestal. But there were a number of others. There's some wonderful writers at Princeton who've written about this and others. But I basically then looked at how this relationship was forged after the end of the Cold War and the collapse of the Soviet Union and take it through various phases of the 1990s, then up to the first Ukrainian crisis of 2014, then right through and up to the beginning of the war and that famous communique, if you remember, Susie, of the 4th of February, when it was a relationship partnership for a new era with no limits, and so I said, and why, therefore, is China, why did it do that? And why, therefore, throughout the war has it remained not involved in the war directly? It's been very careful diplomatically. It still claims it defends the sovereignty or upholds the sovereignty of Ukraine. It constantly says we want peace, but everything it has done so far has basically put it down on the side of Putin and the Russians. I won't go into all the detail. There's too much of it. And the question is why? And I do think Russia, China is a key player. It's a key player in two fundamental respects, Susie, and I want you to come back on me and let's see what you think. Yeah. One is that China is by far and away the most important player in this relationship between Russia and China. China has a China view of the world. Put aside Russia. Xi's view of the world, and I have a lot of great experts here at the LSE who have talked to me about this, and I, I completely buy into their view. Xi has a vision. China is not just rising, China is returning. You know, and China will be sitting at the center of the international order, given its rising economic power and influence and all the other. It'll be sitting at the center of a world order, which will be very different to the one that's been dominated by the United States. Don't underestimate, and that's not just a response to the United States or a reaction to Western liberalism. That's his own vision of the world. And, and I think that's how you have to understand how he views. Putin, in some senses, Russia becomes a useful asset, if I might use that terminology, in what I think is a much larger Chinese strategy, which I think is long term, 
and means, therefore, the 21st century is going to look a lot different to the 20th. I think the other thing is, is if you look at all the rhetoric and all the slogans and all the press releases, and I've been through so much of this diplomats from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and I've read as much of the Chinese press in English, I should add, mm. as possible, then it's quite clear who they're supporting in this war. You know, there's not even a doubt about it. And so therefore, you've got very, very important relationship here. And I think it has helped sustain Putin. If you have a country like China behind you, this is an enormous diplomatic and economic asset for Putin. So there's no question about that in terms of the importance of China, even though China is demanding, for example, a hugely discounted price for Russian gas and oil. So, you know, absent the war, Russia could do better economically, one would think, if not for Putin's ambitions and, you know, having done this war. But on the other hand, I just want to ask one other thing and then have you come back to both. Because it's really intriguing what you say about China's view of the world. And so many people are saying, well, this is really about China supporting Russia because and covering it because China has the same sort of pretensions or ambitions in Taiwan. So maybe you could, in uh-huh. your answer, talk about all of that. Oh, my gosh. You, you don't ask easy questions, Susie. <laughs> The Taiwan issue is crucial for China. If you read Xi's speech at the 20th Congress, he made it front and center. He almost said in his own lifetime, we will see a unification with Taiwan. Now, conceptually, theoretically, and ideologically, the China never wants to link Ukraine with Taiwan, but the two have become totally folded in one to the other. And Russia again has made it clear, and has made it clear since 2016, when the new president was elected in Taiwan, who was not just following the old line, Xi, they've taken a very strong view on Taiwan ever since 2016. One China policy, no independence for China. And and they've emphasized that more and more as time has gone on. And for China, this is crucial. And this is another part of this very important strategic partnership. China's support for Russia over Ukraine without getting involved militarily. We know that. They try to avoid secondary sanctions. We know that. But still the support is clear, and Putin knows it's clear. And if you read anything the Chinese officials say and read what the press says, it's quite clear who they're supporting, however embarrassing sometimes it is to say so. On the other hand, Russia has been unambiguously clear in terms of its increasing support for China over Taiwan. The last speech, I think, that... Sergei Lavrov made at the UN, I think, September 23rd. You know, it wasn't just about Taiwan, but it was a very strong statement attacking the Americans over Taiwan, the Nancy Pelosi visit, the support to Taiwan that comes from the Americans, saying that we will stand beside our Chinese friends, our best friends on the Taiwan issue. So although they may not be connected in some people's minds, they become connected and are now more closely related than they've ever been before. And that's crucial for Russia on Ukraine. By the way, it's very crucial for China over Taiwan. And not to mention Hong Kong as well, which is a whole different discussion that I hope to take up, Mm. you know, in another program. But okay, so this is sort of something that really needs explanation. And you're doing an amazing job, Mick Cox, because you're saying that China's supporting Russia, which seemed at least reluctant or maybe quiet at first, basically 
at the very beginning, it seemed like China was trying to tell Putin not to do it. But when Putin said he was doing, they sort of stood back Mm. and didn't seem happy about the consequences. But you're saying that that it's kind of escalating, maybe, maybe, maybe I have this wrong, a new world sort of trajectory. Yeah, Yeah. go ahead. Look, let's let's go through the chronology very briefly without getting into a long lecture. Up until the end of 2021, the relationship between Russia and China was so tight. So on every issue, on intelligence sharing, on economics, on Internet security, on their vision of the world. And even both shared the same view, by the way, that the West was in decline. So they had a vision that the, the history was moving in their direction and very much more concrete than that as well. Uh, plus, they both have a great, great interest together in preventing what they call color revolutions. In other words, internal political change, whether it's in Ukraine, whether anywhere else. And both she and Putin have gone on about this all the time, about color revolutions, and you've got to prevent them and stop. So it's about regime security, not just about foreign policy or about the United States. But and this it's, it's a fair point to make. How much was Xi Jinping told? They met on the 4th of February. The rumour was, and we don't know if it's true or not, I don't, I don't have, the, I don't have access to Zhonglan High. Mm-hmm. But, you know, is, was, were they, did he say to them, look, I, I, I'm going to have a short war, not a long one. That seems to be what, and why, therefore, did they wait for the Olympics to end and then two, three days <laughs> right. later? It's kind of weird, really. I mean, I can't prove it. I, I can't believe that Putin would have gone ahead without at least indicating to Xi that something was going to go on. And by the way, and I've said this in my article, and I've said it in another way, Russia already had 150,000 troops on the Ukrainian border. And he thought he could do this in a, in a yeah, week or so. And, you know, <laughs> and, you, and, and the Chinese, by the way, were given every bit of intelligence by the Americans. So they may have thought the Americans were trying to hoodwink them. I don't know. Who knows? We'll never know exactly because we, see, we won't have the sources to know. And it is true, it is true, that at first there was a certain sense, oh, my goodness me, what's happening? I think there was (laughs) that. And there's always been those within the Chinese elite, and it's not a united elite after all. This is very much Xi's policy and the top leadership's policy. There was always a feeling, look, do we want to get so close to Russia? Do we want to get so close to Putin? After all, our real economic relations are with, with the global economy from which we have benefited. You know, so there was always that what I call westernizer approach, particularly amongst the economists and the commercial guys. But Xi is very clear on this. He would support. But there was clearly at the beginning, there's no doubt, some degree of trepidation, worry, concerns. And you saw those come out again recently in September when Putin himself said, I know that you must be worried and concerned about some of the issues going down with the war in Ukraine. He, he, he made it very, very explicit. And that, again, sent a few tremors around. I've been talking to people about that. But still, at the end of the day, China, you may have noticed, is still led by one man. Yeah. You know, I mean, the great leader was Xi Jinping thought. And um, he's in now for another term, right? And he's in for another <laughs> term. And he ain't going anywhere. And, he's, you know, he's got certain views about the world. One part of that view is that his good and dear and bosom friend Putin is a good friend and an ally of China. You know, there's no other way of cutting it. I mean, you could constantly keep saying, and I get so annoyed when people, well, Russia, China has its own national interest. I said, yeah, but national interest also can mean you, you try and create alliances to advance your own interests. And that, I think, is what they're doing. Now, of course, it is creating difficulties. 
I'm not denying the underlying tensions there. There are. And if, if the war goes badly wrong, then what's China supposed to do? My own take on this, Susie, and I'll end here. My own take on this is that she will have to come in behind Putin even stronger when the war starts going badly wrong, which it is at the moment, because he cannot see Putin lose and he can't see Russia lose. I think there's a calculation they've made. And in a way, I I call it the Faustian bargain. You've made the bargain, you've done it, and you can't get out of it because the consequences of getting out of it are too difficult to contemplate. That's my view anyway. Yes. And I want to just say, and for the listeners, I will announce the article when it comes out in critique that Mick has written. It's called In the Shadow of the Russian Revolution, Putin Xi and the Long War in Ukraine. And you've just sort of given the final sort of punchline, Mick Cox, but that is that you say China and Russia either have to stick together or hang separately. (laughs) That's really ominous because on the one hand, we should be celebrating that despite this gigantic cost in human lives and in destroyed infrastructure, Ukraine's winning this war. And if anything, the resolve is not being chipped away. There's a cold winter to come. Europe is having misgivings. Europeans are because the price of gas has tripled. Or I I just talked to somebody in Ireland who said their utilities bill went up 300%. It's going up here too, of course, but nothing like that. So there's Mm -hmm. the weariness of supporting Ukraine because of the economic cost. But on the other hand, Ukraine's got the momentum here against Russia. And you're hinting that neither Putin nor China can allow that to happen. So let me hear your thoughts. Well, this is is why I think the situation is very dangerous, as I said earlier on, Susie. You know, we can't avoid that. I mean, if if we take on the one hand Putin's statements, I can't lose this war. And if we take, in a sense, what I think is Xi's position, I can't allow Putin to lose. On the other hand, Ukrainian resistance has grown. And the confidence on the Ukrainian side has increased dramatically since the setbacks that Russia suffered through September and early October. That still nonetheless leaves us in a very dangerous position. And of course, you're beginning to get people on the Western side. So well, let's, can we find a way out of this situation? Exactly. Before it, before it yeah. escalates. Even, and I think you'll start hearing those voices, by the way, becoming stronger. I, I even think that Elon Musk was floating an idea, which others have been talking to him about, really. I really do, don't think he was just coming out with it from nowhere. I think he was floating an idea to see if somebody would pick it up. Nobody did, and certainly not the Ukrainians, as you know. But no, it's a very dangerous situation, but the Ukrainians will not, at this stage, contemplate. What are they negotiating about? I mean, it's not up to me to tell any Ukrainians what to do. You know, I'm just, I'm just a, an outside intellectual observer trying to make sense of a terrible, tragic situation. But what are the Ukrainians supposed to do? Give up the, the four provinces, which have just been annexed? To yeah. Fully and finally give up Crimea. That may be more negotiable. I just don't know. To give up their sovereignty, that's rather important. After all, Russia recognizes its own sovereignty. China certainly recognizes its own sovereignty. So why the hell should Ukraine give up its? You might, you might ask yourself. But I think we could move into a very problematic, we already have. But it could even become more difficult because Putin may es- will escalate the war. And uh, the other thing, too, could I just add to that? Yeah, because sure. Putin ran ahead and annexed these four territories that he doesn't have complete control of at all. And they're fighting back. And from people I spoke to, this so-called referendum, there was no vote. In places, there was a show vote and a few. But but this was just a joke all along. Yeah, but the purpose of those referendums was simply to declare these are parts of Russia. 
So if anybody attacks these four provinces, which are set of regions or oblasts of, right. of Ukraine, you, then you're attacking Russia. And that raises the stakes. That's what he was trying to do. I don't, clearly, the strategy has not worked. Now, I hear different things from different people who know more about the military side than I do. I'm not going to try and become an armchair general. I'm not Clausewitz from <laughs> southwest London, you know, uh, <laughs> if only. I, look, there's different views on this. There are what I call the rather wilder views, which is that Ukraine will win. Now, Ukraine may be, as you suggested, they may be winning but they've still got a long, long way to go ever to win, I think. And it, Russia still has an enormous amount of military capability. OK, a lot of these reservists probably don't want to go and fight, and who can blame them? And many hundreds of thousands of people have been getting out of the country, going to Kazakhstan and God knows where else. I mean, God knows where else in the sense of, you know, where, where else are they going to go? If they, they go to Kazakhstan, who welcome them, they go to Georgia, they go to Turkey, they go anywhere, some of them anyway, to get out, mainly middle-class professionals. So clearly the war is going badly for Putin, but because it's going badly, that I think makes the situation more dangerous. Right. That's all I'm trying to say, Susie. And I don't think, and I go back to the point I made before, and I'm only repeating myself here, there's some fundamental sense that if Putin thinks he's going to lose this war, he then loses his own position within Russia itself. And that for him is a disaster, of course, because he went to war to reinforce his position at home. The war comes home the blowback, and, and the whole regime goes under with him as well. Yeah, and this is really, I think, a key point, uh, Mick Cox, because Putin pretty much identifies Russia with himself. We've yeah. seen this before. He's got the sort of stalino Tsarist yeah. mentality, yeah. you know, that the country say moi. But the other side of it is that, and you've talked about this, we talked about it before the war, yeah. in fact, that prior to the war, Putin was very concerned about the emerging security infrastructure in Europe and wanted to have a seat at the table in redetermining that. But now, because of his actions, we have a whole new, what, trajectory for the war. And and, and you talk a lot about these global consequences. We've just gone over mm-hmm. them. But mm-hmm. maybe just to end in the last two or three minutes, sure. just go over that and what it really, what yeah. you think. It well, I, I like irony, uh, Susie, historic <laughs> irony. The ironies of history, the great Isaac Deutscher wrote about that many years ago, didn't he? And Mm. one of the great ironies of this particular war, a tragic and terrible war that it certainly is, one of the great ironies that it's far from undermining and weakening NATO, it's actually strengthened it. Now they've got two new members who, who, by the way, have some serious military capability. And one of those, that's Finland and Sweden, and one of those countries, of course, has an 800-mile border um, with Russia, which which is not insignificant from the point of view of NATO. Secondly, Germany, which had a certainly what I call interesting relationship with Russia, an interesting relationship with the oil sector and the gas sector. Germany has turned around, I wouldn't say completely, because there's still those there who want quickly negotiated settlement as quickly as possible. But Germany has changed dramatically in terms of public opinion towards Russia. Thirdly, dare I say it about the United States, I mean, Biden looked like a busted flush after <laughs> Afghanistan. Did he not? Mm. And, you know, even the British, who generally tend to be, you know, a bit soft on the Americans, as you know, the parliamentary debate post-Afghanistan in this country was absolutely scathing against Biden after Afghanistan. And now, of course, you know, we're back. America's back. So the triple wonder of this war is you've strengthened NATO, 
we will get to two to three percent probably. Germany is much more central to this whole project now more than ever. And you're going to leave also Russia in a situation that's more or less cut off every single economic relationship it has with countries and parts of the world economy it needs to have economic relations with. You know, it can compensate by selling cheap oil to China or more food to somewhere else like Africa. All good. I, I don't dispute any of that. That's the ones do. That's fine. But nonetheless, the part of the world that most Russians really want to have a proper relationship, it, put it in, in the use, the old fashioned word, the West. You know, I mean, where, where do Russians want to send their kids to school? You know, where do they want to go on holiday? Where do they want to deposit their money? It's in London. They want to go on holiday to the south of France. They want to kind of live in Europe mainly or, or indeed in the United States. And all that has been cut off. So the long-term future for Russia, I think, it wasn't great before, I imagine. I mean, I, I, I don't, haven't been visiting to, to know. And I talked to a lot of Russian friends and, and they said, well, you know, on one hand it was okay, on the other hand it wasn't. You know, Moscow and St. Petersburg were doing okay, but the rural areas are still pretty awful, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But the long-term future looks pretty bleak, I have to say. The overwhelming majority of ordinary Russians, yeah. Well, I would like to end on a note of hope, Mick Cox, because just as you said that so far in the eyes of many of the pundits that there's no agency for Putin and there's no agency for Ukraine. But I'm going to say let's give some agency to ordinary Russians and Ukrainians and Chinese, because we have yet to hear from them. That's just beginning. Of course, Ukrainians we're seeing. But how will it go down, you know, as Russia sinks ever more? In Russia, you know, we all know about that, I guess what we call it, the long-term patience of Russian <laughs> peasants mm. and workers, and then they erupt. Resilience, so, resilience. Yes. So I think maybe, you know, this chapter is not over for sure, yeah. but I'm really glad that you're on it, Mick Cox. And I want to thank you so much, not just for this article, but for the book that you're writing. And I can't wait to read, <laughs> but I know you write quickly, so it won't take that long. But I'd like to let the listeners know that you can read uh, Mick's article and then is it the next critique, yeah, which yeah, will be out. Coming, it'll be online. It'll be online. Yes, yeah, so, yeah. It'll be online soon. And it's called In the Shadow of the Russian Revolution, Putin, Xi and the Long War in Ukraine. And it's by Mick Cox, my dear friend and guest, who is a emeritus professor of international relations. And now he's also going to be a visiting professor in Milan. He's also academic advisor to the China Foresight Forum. And you've just gotten a little tidbit, if not an extended conversation and glimpse at some of his Mm. wide ranging interests and and thinking. So for all of that, Mick, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks very much for your great questions. And thanks to all the listeners for listening. And I hope it provokes an open and uh, Nice debate amongst people and some disagreement too, I also hope for. Great. Thank you so much, Mick. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sunkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. And special thanks to Robert Brenner. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman.